supposed to comfort one another with the comforts wherewith we are comforted. In Joshua, it says, Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be not thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. If I was to title what I have for you this morning, I would call it the overwhelming weight of sadness, or the unbearable weight of sadness. It seemed like everything was conspiring to cause me to think about this, this verse, which I'd always leaned to on this subject, my wife had elected to write and put on our refrigerator as a part of her homeschooling work. The Babylon Bee, which is a satirical Christian site, which likes to make jokes about things, joked about a man who didn't know the Bible, saying, don't worry, God will never give you more than you can handle. To the end of the article, it said, the man started to read the Bible to see if this was true, and said, okay, half the men in the Old Testament seemed to at some point cry out for God to kill them. (laughs) Maybe that's not so. I've always been prone to sadness. When I was young, about 13, I decided it would be a good time to run away. I had a plan, stole a bunch of sweaters from my sisters because it was cold, and I thought, all right, I'm going to make this happen. And that very same week, my, ni- my 17-year-old sister ran away from home. Took all the glory, of course, but it made me realize it was a stupid plan because they were found just walking up a highway in New Jersey, heading generally towards one of my other sister's houses, but with no particular plan, I realized that was where I was, too. Sadness is a thing, beloved, that is real. If you listen to your songs this morning, you maybe think back to the songs we sang, even the last one. All of them have some element of the sadness of this life. This life is sad. I have told you countless times before that if it were not for sin, we would have all of them. All of our brothers and sisters in Christ that would be alive to this day, and they would all be brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Because every person all the way back to Adam would still be walking with us. There is suffering that is caused by us. There is suffering that is caused by the sin of others. And there is suffering that is handed down generation after generation in this sin-sick world. So what do you do about it? What do you do in the dark hours, in the night, the dark hours in the day, when we're alone, when we're separated? We have endless promises that end in joy. We have endless promises that, despite all the death, end in life. We have endless promises that, despite all of those loneliness and in unending companionship with him, with each other, with what is referred to as a um, innumerable host of witnesses. <laughs> so the Bible implores us to do a number of things, and they are very hard things, things that were impossible before. First, I want to leave you with this morning is to trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We don't often read the next verse. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. These are together on purpose. One of the reasons why I was so prone to sadness is it was a particular type of sin that I loved, reveling in depression. I got to the point, and I could still do it to this day, where I can lay down on a bed, and that feeling you get when something horrible has happened to you, that crushing weight, I could make that happen instantly just by thinking about it because I spent so much time sad and depressed. It's why every time I come together with you all, I am overwhelmed with joy. We have something that brings us together. 
We have God that we can turn to and lean on in our hours of need. We have people who pray for us and petition him in our hour of need. And when I see my brothers in Christ over there who are going through a difficult time, I feel very strongly for them. I know you all do too. But we get to do something. We're commanded to do something. Beloved, this is a command directly from God. Neither be thou dismayed. You cannot give up. You don't have the right. You don't have an excuse. You don't have a reason. You don't have the authority to throw yourself into despondency. You have another command in the New Testament, though. It's a better one. Not because the other one was less, but because it comes directly from the mouth of him who will carry the load. Cast your cares on him. Cast your cares on Jesus, whether they be small, whether they be light. You see that spirit which exists in the new is also in the old. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's not too much. You children, you children know how it is to just turn and recognize that dad's here. To recognize that there is just maybe some ideas you've been taught by him. That there is some love that overshadows you. That there is some care that he has for you. And there is some wisdom he has laid down for you. Just in all your ways, wherever you are, just acknowledge him. He then shall direct thy paths. Beloved, you are walking in a corn maze. You can't see what's ahead of you. You're walking in the woods. You don't know what's coming beyond those trees ahead of you. You are on a river that turns and turns, and you don't know what's around the next bend. And the God who sees all has not promised that you will see all. The wisdom of God is not that you will be able to see, as he does from the heavens, every path, every way through every cornfield, down every river bend. It's that you will learn the wisdom for how to act in every lost situation. You will know exactly who to turn to and that you will never be alone. You have many proofs of this in your life. Some of them are within. They are secret and no one knows them but you. Some of them are things you've talked about and things you've heard from others. But the best proof you have is sitting right next to you in your pews. I got elected you to be drawn together with a number of other people who are in the exact same position. Tied to a dead man. Surrounded by others suffering the same way in this sin-sick world when we ourselves fall. Don't forget that last part. Sometimes in our sadness and sometimes in our sorrow, we forget that the Lord has to tell you to not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Unless you fall into those errant lies of this time and of all time, say that there is some kind of separation with God between the old and the new, what were the first things that Jesus came out teaching and preaching? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and turn from your wicked ways. And anyone who would take this Jesus without taking his repentance will find him neither friend nor comfort. We must remember that there are things that are sins in our lives that we hold to. Some of them are hidden from us. He said, cleanse thou me from secret faults. That's something we should cry out to God about. But something that we should remember is sin is not casting our cares on him. Are you sad? Do you have legitimate reason to be so? And you are walking in this world. Depression is a thing that many suffer from. But it is true that God is here to comfort all those that have been depressed. He's here to fix and bind up every wound. In the end, they shall all be bound up. But he is so gentle. He is said to be the man who walks on this earth. And that a broken piece of grass, he will not finish off. A smoking flax that is no longer burning, he won't be the one to quench it. Beloved, the tiniest fire you have left in you, in love of God, in your moments of sadness, he will not crush. 
sometimes we, we have difficulty going to God because God is so harsh. He will crush his enemies beneath his feet. And he does, and he has. He reacted again and again in the Old Testament with a zeal, the likes of which we will one day possess, but currently don't know, to crush from Israel those who did not love him with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength, as was manifested by them obeying his law. He crushed them and killed parts of that people over and over again. But that same God, who is so fierce against sin, will with your sin, take it, put it upon himself, be willing to bleed himself out so that you don't bleed a single drop, so that you don't suffer a moment more than is absolutely necessary. Because he loves you, because he cares about you. Remember, in your moments of loss, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, who thought their God himself had forsaken them, who saw him die, who did not believe that he had risen again, yet who he walked with. And what did he choose to do? How did he choose to comfort them? And what were their words afterwards? But what he did was he was with them. He comforted them by reminding them of his word. Took them from Moses all the way to the end, reminded them of their Jesus. And what happened to them? They said after he left, did not our hearts burn within us? They were so sad, they didn't realize what was happening. That their God was right there with us in their darkest hours. Cast your hearts, your cares on him, for he cares for you. I want to remind you just this. There's many great psalms that struggle with this, that deal with this struggling that we have. In Psalm 69, it says, Save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. Didn't we hear that? How firm a foundation. These saints of the Lord is laid for your faith. When through the deep waters, he calls you to go. Where are the waters in this case? Waters sometimes in scripture and in many of the allegories of our songs are the waters of death that we all will pass through. That for some are shallow and some are so deep we can hardly bear it. But no, these are the waters of sorrow. When through the deep woe, the song says, Save me, for the waters are come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt the floods overflowing you? There was no ground to stand on and everything around you was trying to drown you? Or carry you downstream to slam you across the rocks. Surely, even the children understand what it's like to be that overwhelmed, to be that sad about some action of yourself or some other or something completely uncontrollable. But here you have the example. The scripture is teaching you how to cry out to God. If you don't know, just say these words out loud. Sing them. Cry out to him. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fall while I wait for my God. May that, beloved, be your testimony. Not because it's a testimony that we seek, but because with that testimony, he always answers. No one who has waited upon the Lord in spirit and in truth has ever, ever not seen him. And not seen him in ways special and miraculous. He'll go on to talk about many things. Often in the Psalms, he talks about struggling with the people around him. I guess as I grow older and older, that seems to be more and more a pressing problem. Because walking in this world, seeking God and periodically failing, slipping, as sometimes the songs say, has us, has those without who would consistently mock us. But we're called to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God, whether we are taken in sin or we are taken in sadness. Often, we can be taken in both. And recognize our place. The psalmist will go on in verse 29 and say, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. 
for any moments of sadness, don't make the mistake I made so often as a teenager. Then later, the thing that drove me to enjoy uh, drugs and a life of debauchery and trouble. Don't go down that road. But remember that there is a way you will be set up on high that doesn't require lies and tricks and smokes and mirrors of all, the li- of all the pleasures of this world, every single one of which is unsustainable. And everything that God promises is sustainable, not just for your whole life, but for eternity. Pleasures that don't ever wane, but that in fact wax greater and greater and greater. That's what we look forward to. That is the hope that we have in our Jesus. And that is the hope he promised us. Set me up on high. Let that be your desire. There's a time for sadness and a time for mourning. We are talking about this last night at the dinner table. There's a time for everything. It would be improper if we had a song service today that was full of dancing. For a particular purpose. The church is affected by certain things. There's a time to mourn. But there is a time to dance. Our goal, beloved, is to be near him. And feel what he feels. And desire the things he desires. When that is joy, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we know, beloved, that the times of sorrow are short. That the most of sorrow you will ever have is all going to be here. He says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He says there shall be no sorrow there. I wonder whether there will be a sudden surprise and vacuum. Almost as though we were one walking around with a gigantic tumor inside of our bellies that hurt all the time and pushed away the organs. And then all of a sudden it was gone. In a moment, as a miracle, all of a sudden everything just feels different. It feels right, but it feels wrong because I'm different. I don't know what it'll be like. But I know that it's right for us to desire that he should set us up on high. Because the Bible here tells us this. This is not false manly glory. So let us not use false humility as an answer to this. Let us desire that we should be set up on high. That we might do this next verse. I will praise the name of God with a song. And will magnify him with thanksgiving. There's conversation in the Bible of him giving us a song in the night. Many of the songs that you hear sing come in the hours of deepest depression of the songwriters when he gave them a song in the night. Some of them come when people are desirous to serve others. The Battle Hymn of the Republic was like that. I guess we're how close are we to the Mason-Dixon line. I don't want to go too far here, but the Battle Hymn of the Republic was given in the middle of the night in about 20 minutes to a woman who was a poet who had seen them marching and singing that, that song about John Brown's body and said, this just isn't right. And the preacher near her leaned over and said, it'd be nice if someone gave them a better song. And we have a song to this very day that we sing about how God will crush out his enemies and he will bring joy to his beloved. It says, this also shall please the Lord better than ox or bullocks that have horns with hooves. Did you think that in sorrow, in sorrow, you can give the greatest sacrifices outside of Jesus himself that he would have? For a contrite heart and a broken spirit are his delight. And it says here that thanksgiving pleases him. Just being thankful. That's why we practice so regularly to be thankful before our meals. That's why we tell each other the things that we're thankful for. Because in those moments of sorrow, beloved, cast your cares on him and he'll remind you. And then as a song which used to be a children's song, I was reading a very old hymn or a very old sermon about this and they said as a children's song saying count your many blessings. Name them one by one. There's a time though. There's a, there's a pattern here. First, he threw upon God all of his concerns. All of them. I mean, I skipped to verse 29 because I don't have time to go through them all. But he didn't hold anything back. He cast all his cares on Jesus. You have Jesus in song. 
You have the Father to lay all your cares on, and you have each other, and the Spirit that in them dwells to cast all your cares on. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost ready with open arms to take all of your sorrow, to turn it from sorrow and sadness into joy. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I just want to kind of summarize what Brother John preached this morning about the hope that we have. I read a verse yesterday after we arrived in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I may begin a series from this book at Hopewell starting next week. And so I have the habit of sometimes reading the Greek-English interlinear copy of the Bible, and it has the King James on the panel as well on the side. And sometimes you get little nuggets that you wouldn't get, or maybe if you're real familiar with the English. I've memorized First uh, Timothy some years ago, and one of the problems when you memorize things is it becomes so familiar that it's easy to gloss over what you're reading. And in reading it in the Greek, this really stood out to me, and it's, it's, it's here in the English. If you're paying attention, you'll notice this, but it's easy to gloss over. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, semicolon, and then he goes on. But you see here in the uh, King James Version translation, the words which is is in italics. So when you read it in the Greek, it, it says, and Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. And that really is what stood out to me. That's what John just preached to us this morning, that Jesus Christ is our hope. And when I read that, I'll tell you, it was a little bit convicting. I heard of a preacher uh, in the South. He referenced me in a sermon, and it was about Romans 8.28. And I know that people have different opinions about that, but he referenced how I had said one time, he'd heard me preach, don't take Romans 8.28 from, uh, from me. That's my hope. And so I thought about hearing that and then reading this verse, and I was convicted. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I've been wrong. And putting my hope in a particular doctrine, when really, what does the Bible say? Jesus Christ in his fullness is our hope. So if we're struggling with despair or depression or hopelessness, the answer is Christ. He is your hope for every situation. doesn't matter what challenge you're facing. And it reminds me in 1 Corinthians 13 how that we're told that there's three things that remain. Faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And I see those three things being very closely tied together. He says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also as I am known. And maybe you can think about times in your life where part of the reason that you had hopelessness or despair was a lack of information. You know, when you're a teenage, I mean, I can relate exactly. And I appreciate John being transparent about how his, his feelings were. I've known people that were maybe embarrassed or ashamed to admit that they struggle with depression. Maybe there's some personalities. Maybe you have a personality where you don't struggle with that at all. And that's a gift from God if you don't have that struggle. But when you're a young person, it's easy to think, man, life is so hard. I just can't imagine it ever getting better. And I'm just going to take a check out. I'm going to check out. This is no longer worth the struggle. And maybe as you become an adult, maybe you can relate. I know a man 
when he was a full-grown man, uh, talking about how God saved him, he was laying on his, uh, in his upstairs in his attic with a gun facing towards his chest, and he was ready to pull the trigger. God saved his life. God delivered him from that. It's easy in those times of hopelessness and despair to feel like it's just never going to get better. There's nothing that can make this situation better. And what he's telling us here is that we're seeing through a glass darkly. You're seeing a little bit. You can see a little bit through the tainted, through the tinted glass or through the, the stained glass or whatever it is. We're seeing, and you can see a little bit of objects. You can perceive some of what's going on, but you're seeing through the glass darkly. There's a time coming when you're going to see face to face. All the things that are obscure, all the things that are confusing, all the things that are depressing or disappointing are going to be made clear. And you're going to see Christ behind it all. You're going to see that he was there, that he was with you through the midst of that trial, that he's the one that is allowing these things to take place in our life, that he is sovereign over providence. We rejoice in his sovereignty in our election, that we have a God who is irresistible in his grace when he calls people to himself, when he calls his elect to himself. But I'm telling you, he's sovereign in providence as well. And I think you've got to really emphasize the fact that he either causes or he allows everything that takes place. Brother Zach Guest has a saying. He says, if I do anything good, God gets all the credit. And if I do anything bad, I take 100% of the blame. That is a perfect balance to me of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. It's easy to go into either ditch. It's It's easy to go and say, well, God's sovereign, so I'm not responsible for what I do. And if I'm disobedient, I can lay that at God's feet. That's what Adam tried to do. Adam, what have you done? Well, really, it's the woman's fault. And really, God, you're the one that gave her to me, so it's really your fault. That's really what he's implying. I sinned because of the woman who you gave me, God. And we want to go to that position. Well, Lord, if you hadn't put me in this situation in the first place, I wouldn't have reacted the way that I did. You know, something to, to think about is you can't really control anything in your life except for one thing. I think Scripture would back me up on this. You can control how you respond. That's, only, that's really the only thing you have control over. We like to feel like we're in control. That's why we want money so much. The more money you have, the more you feel like you can get the things that you need and want. Jesus says he's chosen the poor in this world rich in faith. And the reason for that, I think a lot of times, is when you're poor financially or in other ways, you recognize if you're in a horrible situation, there's no deliverance other than for God to intervene. And so I ask you, would you rather be rich in this world and poor in faith or rich in faith and poor in this world if you had to choose? You say, well, I'd prefer to have both. Well, if you couldn't have both, if you had to choose, which would you like? And I would tell you that as a believer, what's going to do you more spiritually, what's going to do more for you spiritually is to fill your need for God every day that you wake up. Because Jesus says when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Depending upon Him for your daily bread. How many of us really sincerely feel that every day? Lord, I need you to provide for my daily bread. I need you to forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. And Lord, I need you to deliver me from evil. Maybe not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. He says, these three remain. Now about these three. Faith, hope, and charity. So how do you see? If you're looking through a glass darkly, how do you see what's on the other side? How do you see from the physical realm into the spiritual realm? It's by faith. Faith in the Word of God. Faith in the revelation that He's given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person. We see the love of God. We see the wisdom of God. We see the power of God. And what the Bible says is the cross of Christ. What to the, those that perish is foolishness. 
But to us which are called, us which are saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. That God would send His only begotten Son to the world, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus Christ would die on the cross for the sins of His elect, and that that would be the display of God's grace and His power and His wisdom and His love for His people. When you think about men like Job and those who have suffered, those that you know who are suffering today, when you think about your own suffering you think about what Jesus Christ suffered. Of all the things that you and I can go through, He took, he took it uh, a multiplication term. If you multiply it, many folds more than anything that you can ever, the worst thing you can imagine is what He took in His soul. When He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Growing up in a Christian home, some of you, I, th- I don't know about if it's half and half or if it's 75, 25 or what, but there's a mixture here. There's those who have grown up in Christian homes, who have had godly parents or grandparents, who have influenced you and taken you to church and have taught you God's word and have set an example for you of a godly life. And there's others who have not grown up in the church, who've, not, who've grown up without that example. I forgot what my point was. We see through a glass darkly, but then face to faith. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. So we're able to see the unseen by faith. We're able to believe in the goodness of God and the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection by faith. I think that was kind of what I was trying to get at a moment ago. Um... For someone who grew up in the church, around the church, thinking he understood what the church stood for and what it represented. You know, I think I've shared this with you before. When when I joined the church at Shoal Creek, I was about 14 or 15, 15 years old. And I thought in my mind, this was the thought that I had. I thought these old people are going to be so happy to have a young person join the church. That's not the right attitude to have, by the way. I like that Sister Polk's attitude of coming down. I've heard the story that she ran down the aisle and grabbed onto the chair and just started praying, Lord, please let them, bless them to accept me. So just to confess to you, that was my attitude. And I think that I was guilty when we had communion of, of doing what he says not to do in 1 Corinthians about taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. Not discerning the body and blood of Christ. Going through a tradition, you know, my grandparents do it, my family does it, this is what you're supposed to do as you become an adult. Maybe that's kind of the experience that you've had as a young person. Maybe you can't relate to that. But I'm telling you, what led to my conversion, after falling asleep on the front pew there at Grace Chapel in 2002, I think it was, the, this, the uh, summer meeting, and just having that really terrible, guilty feeling like I'm such a terrible person. I can't even stay awake during a service, a preaching service, Saturday afternoon. And feeling that load of guilt. And while he was preaching, I don't know what the preacher was saying. But I'm just telling you what happened. As my head bobbed down, it was only probably a second. But you know how it is when you fall asleep. It can feel like you've been asleep for a long time. And in that instant... I was able to see Christ in a way I had not seen Him before. I knew about Him. I had a lot of head knowledge. In fact, I will tell you, I had been studying the doctrine of grace. I had learned the tulip doctrine. And I don't think I was even converted yet. 
But I knew this is the doctrine, and I'd read my Bible, and I'd highlighted all the verses. Oh, yeah, there it is. There's election. There's predestination. This is what we believe. We're right. They're wrong. And I can have a debate with you about how prudent Baptists have the truth, and you need to repent and believe the truth. So there's a lot of head knowledge. But as one man talks about, you know, was it really in the heart? Was there a love there for Christ? There was a belief. I remember one time at Shoal Creek before being converted. I don't know if I was a member of the church yet. It was a, it was a brief time between when I was baptized and then when I was actually converted. It was probably about a year and a half or so. But I remember sitting there on the front pew on the other side at Shoal Creek on this side. And thinking in my mind, if Christ was to walk up the dirt road here to the church building, if I was to see him face to face... And I thought in my heart, and I kind of, just to be honest with myself, I had to realize, I don't think I would enjoy that interaction. I don't think I would enjoy meeting him right now. You know, and that was kind of convicting. This is why we're here. We're here to worship Christ. He's our hope. Would you have confidence before him on the day of judgment? John talks about that in 1 John chapter 3, about the confidence that we have. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. And the confidence that we have before Christ at His coming. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Oh yeah, it's verse 17. 1 John four seventeen. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. I hope that's convicting for all of us. You got a brother or sister that you can't get along with. Maybe it's your natural kin or maybe it's most importantly here in the church, in the kingdom of God. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? In other words, your opportunity to serve God, your opportunity to see God in the earth is in the face of your brothers and sisters. And we ought to treat one another the same way we would treat Christ if he was here, which he is. In the spirit, the Holy Ghost, he's here. And behave ourselves in the way, I mean, think about it. President Trump or somebody that you really, or even Brother Stephen, for example, if he was to come over to your house. You might take extra care to clean things up and to have things straight and orderly and be on your mind, your P's and Q's and and be a good host. We come to the house of God. He's here. He's interested in what's going on. He's seeking to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped. He's interested in the songs that you sing and the prayers that you offer and what's said about him from this pulpit. And this is this commandment. Have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. So for me in my conversion, when it went from the head knowledge to the heart, that was the change. And what really had an impact was thinking there, if I had that guilty feeling, that was a familiar feeling. If you're not a believer and you have a conscience that hasn't been completely seared, then you have some guilt when you do something wrong, especially when you get caught. And I was caught. I was on the front row. There's a lot of other people that probably saw me fall asleep. So maybe it was just my natural human conscience. But I'm telling you, what helped me in that, what gave me hope, was the awareness that, you know what, and being able to see it by faith that Jesus died, and I knew he had died. I knew he died on the cross. I've been taught that. When I was three or four years old, we went to a Braves game, and we were on the subway getting ready to um, come home after the game, and I thought, I kind of had one of those urges, like my daughter Ella one time. We were on the balcony. And she started crying and she said, Dad, 
I, something, I feel like something's wanting me to jump off. And I could relate to that. Because I had this, maybe it was a demonic force saying, you know, why don't you just jump down into the train tracks there? And I knew there were electric trains. I didn't know if you'd get electrocuted if you fell on. I was a young boy. But it made me think about death. And I asked my dad, I said, why did Jesus have to die? And he said, well, God looked through time and saw there was no one that could, could do what Christ did. And so that's why he had to come. So from a young age, I've known that Jesus died and I knew why he died. I knew that he would suffer. I knew they nailed him to the tree. He suffered the pain in his hands and his feet. He suffered the crown of thorns on his head. There was a lot of physical pain and bloodshed on the cross. It was a violent death. It was a horrible thing. None of us want to go through that. But what God showed me that afternoon there at Grace Chapel in July of 2002 was the suffering that Jesus went through physically, you might argue, was nothing compared to what he went through spiritually. Because the Bible says, like was already prayed this morning, he became sin for us who knew no sin. He who had never indulged in sin, he who had never disobeyed the will of the Father, he who had kept the, the law of God perfectly, who hated sin, is contrary to his nature. He's in perfect harmony with the will of God, the God of the universe. He's God himself, God in the flesh. He becomes sin. He becomes guilty. He became our sacrifice. God the Father punished him, poured out his wrath upon him, judged him, condemned him, turned his back upon him. And there was a soul agony that Jesus experienced that I think exceeded the suffering of his hands and his feet and his body, the lacerations on his body. And he did that out of love for your soul. And love, I'm telling you, that thought and that ability to grasp that by faith made me love him for the first time. I knew who he was. And I don't think I would have liked meeting him before then. I was a hypocrite, really. But to see that he suffered all of this for my sin made me realize now that he's borne that guilt. He bore that guilt of falling asleep in church. And all the other bigger sins, if there are bigger sins, I'm sure there are. And all the sins of my life accumulated together. And all of your sins, all the sins of all of his people, and all of time, that load of stinking filth put upon him, that horrible weight of guilt and condemnation. And then he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one he always called father, he calls my God. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the grace of these is charity. It's by faith that you're able to see these things. See Christ in all of his glory. The unsearchable riches of Christ, Brother Mark was starting to quote. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You're never going to be able to plumb the depths of the love and of the grace of Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul says in Ephesians 3, he says... That you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. you hear that? Hear that contradiction? He says, I'm praying for you to comprehend something that passes knowledge. You're never going to get to the end of the love of God. You're never going to be able to completely say, I've gone to the ends of outer space. I've gone to the ends and the bounds of God's love and His grace. And now I understand it completely. And now I've comprehended it completely. That's going to be your eternal delight, I believe. To plumb the depths of the grace of God. Faith, we do that by faith now. And then it says, hope. Where does your hope come from? It comes from 
The knowledge that you have of Jesus Christ, the relationship that you have with Him by faith. But then he says, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. So those tie together. I think it's probably, you could go in order. You have faith, and then because you have faith, you have hope. And then because you have hope, you're able to really show charity. You're really able to show love, unconditional love. Before you know Christ, before you're saved, you're not going to be able to love your neighbor like you love yourself. You're just not going to, it's not going to be in you. You're not going to have the capacity to be considerate of the needs of others. Because all you're going to be concerned about is, how do I satisfy and take care and protect myself? But Jesus is calling you to be meek. He's calling you to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, to lay down your life, even for those who want to kill you. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can't do that unless you have, first of all, faith in Christ and hope that he's going to provide for you, that he's sovereign over everything that's taking place in your life, and that if you lay down your life at the feet of your brethren, that he can take care of you as you're attending to the needs and the concerns of those that are around you. The greatest of these is charity, maybe because that's the one that's going to remain in heaven. Faith is going to turn to sight. Hope is going to be realized, but there's going to be charity. We're going to have the opportunity to serve one another, to serve our Savior, Jesus Christ, to be satisfied with Him when we wake in His likeness and to uh, do for eternity whatever it is that He wants us to do. And to be able to do it perfectly, skillfully, uh, promptly, and joyfully, and uh, to worship Him in the process. Love you all. God bless you. It's my pleasure.